ask you to come on up right now, brother, if you would, and just lead us into God's Word together. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be back with you uh, again. Been looking forward to it uh, these past few weeks. Let me just offer a, a quick word of prayer for this time. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. And now I pray that you would speak to us all from it. May we grow in the knowledge of you and your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. D-I-Y. Do it yourself. Do it yourself culture, it's been around actually for a little while. It's not necessarily a new thing, but I think in our current YouTube age, it's really taken off, hasn't it? I mean, you can find anything on YouTube. You go there and you can fix your car, you can build something for your house, you can find crafts for your kids, you can do anything on YouTube. DIY culture, it is great. We don't need contractors anymore, we don't need mechanics, we can do it ourselves. Except sometimes DIY can actually be harmful, can't it? Yeah, maybe you started a home renovation project and quickly realized you were in over your head. Maybe you had a problem with your car or with an appliance and you went on YouTube and tried to fix it and it worked, you fixed it. For a little while, oh, all right. Worked for a little while, and then it didn't. And you needed to call a mechanic. You needed to call a repair person, uh, anyways, right? For all the benefits of DIY, for all the the benefits of doing things ourselves, sometimes we just can't. Sometimes we need someone to help us. Sometimes we need someone with more expertise, with more skill, with more knowledge. I think this shows itself to be true maybe more than anything when it comes to our own sin. All too often in our sin, we can feel like we need to do something about it ourselves. If I just try harder, if I just change myself, if I just clean myself up, I can do it. I'm strong enough. I don't need anybody else. But is that a healthy way to approach our sin? Where does God fit into the equation? Should God fit into the equation? Or is the Christian life, is the fight against sin just another avenue for DIY. Well, as they so often are, the Psalms are a helpful means of making sense of our world, of answering the big questions of life. And Psalm 51 is no different. Psalm 51, it is an example of someone, probably David, who is utterly dependent on God. And so I think it instructs us to do the same if I could sum up uh, what the, really the point I want you to take away from this morning, it would be this. Bring your sin before the God who shows mercy. This might seem counterintuitive. 
You know, so often in our sin, we want to hide. So often in our sin, we want to take care of it ourselves. We want to make our sin a DIY project. But this psalm teaches us that the best thing we do when we sin is to go straight to God and bring our sin before the God who shows mercy. To help us consider this point, we're going to move through this psalm in three parts. We're going to see how each of these three parts, it expresses a different nuance of David's prayer. So first, we're going to see a prayer of confession. Then second, a prayer for cleansing. And finally, a prayer of contrition. So let's start by looking at verses 1 to 6. We're going to see a prayer of confession. I'll I'll read them again for us. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Well, our psalm, it actually begins with a superscript that it's probably maybe in your Bible in like a different font or something right there. I think it's just helpful to remind us there's probably like a psalm title in your Bible. So in mine, it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And these titles are, are usually pretty helpful. They're put in by our wonderful friends at the ESV for me. That's what, what translation I have or you know, the NIV or whatever. The, the editors, they put these titles in. They're usually pretty helpful in you know, kind of telling us what the sections are about. But then these superscripts... These are original text. These were there in the Hebrew, and uh, I feel like we often gloss over them because oftentimes they're not that helpful. (laughs) Sometimes it's just like, to the choir master, or it uses some Hebrew word, no one knows what it means, and it's just kind of like, okay, I don't need that, I'm going to gloss over it. But sometimes the superscripts give us some little tidbit of information that is helpful, that, that sets the context in which the psalm was written. And we have one of those today, friends. How exciting. We get to look at the superscript. It's going to help us out. It's going to give us some context here. And so right here to the choir master, okay, you know, great. A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And maybe you're here this morning and you hear those names and it's just like, okay, I don't know who any of those people are. Maybe you're here this morning, you do know who they are. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, those sound familiar, I can't remember who they are. I'm going to just go through and kind of retell the story uh, that we kind of find these characters in, just to get us all on the same page for the context of this psalm. So this all, it refers to 2 Samuel 11 and 12, chapters 11 and 12. Maybe later today it might be worth uh, you reading that kind of in your quiet time or devotional time just to check it out. But I'll just briefly tell the story of what happens here to, to really lay out the context in which this psalm was written. So the writer of Second Samuel 11, he, he tells us that King David, one of Israel's best kings, he was just kind of lounging around one day 
and he should have been out with his army. So his army's fighting a battle. David should have been there, but instead he's lounging around the palace, and he takes a walk over. He's kind of looking out at you know his kingdom, and he sees this beautiful woman. Now at this point, what David should have done was nothing. But unfortunately, that's not what David did. Now, David, he misuses his kingly power. He calls the woman Bathsheba, who's mentioned here, kind of up into his uh, palace, into his chambers. He ends up getting her pregnant. All right, so this is already pretty bad. But then, David, he's like, oh no, I have to cover it up. And so he calls to his army where Bathsheba's husband Uriah is fighting. And David invites Uriah home. Now, a small detail that we actually miss oftentimes is that Uriah is mentioned later in the book of 2 Samuel. Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men. So this is his buddy's wife who he slept with. It wasn't just some random girl. It was his friend's wife who he gets pregnant. He calls Uriah back to try to cover it up. He says, Uriah, take a break. Excuse me, take a break. Go, you know, go home to your wife. Uriah is a more noble man than David. He refuses. He sleeps outside on the, the steps of the palace. He refuses to go home for the vacation. So David, he just decides, okay, I'm just going to have him killed in battle. And so he gives orders to kind of do this little ploy to have everybody back up, leaving Uriah defenseless, and Uriah gets killed. So to summarize, David gets his friend's wife pregnant, tries to lie about it, and then just kills the guy to cover everything up. The prophet Nathan, sent by God, he confronts David through the use of a parable, and and David, in the story, seems to have his heart softened to his own sin. He seems to realize the incredible sin that he had committed. He seems to realize that he had messed up in the most humongous of ways. This is the context of Psalm 51. Incredible, incredible, tragic, horrendous sin. This is why David begins with a plea for mercy. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. David has a problem. It is a big problem. And it's his own sin. This scandalous, terrible sin in particular. But David's not simply confessing that he has sinned or that he has sinned in the past. He's also confessing his need for God to do something about his sin, right? He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. You, God, blot out my transgressions. You do something about it. You wash me, verse 2. You cleanse me. David understands that his sin is a big problem, but he also understands that God is the only one who can do something about it. And here we learn something very important about confession. Confessing sin, it's not just like a defense mechanism to make ourselves feel better. 
think Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart, the main character, he feels so guilty that he just confesses his sin to try to make himself feel better. No, that's not what confession is. Confessing sin, it's not just simply words we just spew off, you know, just kind of flippantly. You know, oh yeah, I did this, I did this, I thought this, I said this. All right, God, we're cool. No, that's not what confessing sin is. Now here we see that confessing sin, it's done in humility. It's done with a broken heart. It's done with the purpose of invoking action on God's part, and yet not the action that the sin deserves, but mercy instead. That's what David's doing here. That's, that's how he's confessing sin. And so I wonder, is that how you normally think about confessing sin? as actually an action to invoke God to do something, but not what your sin deserves, but to show you mercy. I don't know about you. I often find myself, if I'm confessing sin to God, doing it really kind of quickly, not spending a ton of time on it, just kind of moving through it without little thought, kind of just phoning it in. I know I should confess my sin to God, so I do it. We're instructed to take our sin to God, And yet, I wonder, if you're anything like me, maybe confessing sin to God, it can just become kind of a rote exercise, something we just kind of go through the motions doing. David is not just phoning it in here. He is admitting his sinfulness before God. He's crying out for God to do something about it, not in judgment, but in mercy. Let's be a people who take our sin to God, not just because we know we should, Let's be a people who take our sin to God because we are heartbroken at our own sin and because we are fully reliant on God to show us mercy. Well, as David moves on, he continues to kind of bear his sin before God. Verse 3, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. And then in verse 4, he says something that's quite audacious, doesn't he? Against you, you only, God, I have sinned. Now, wait a minute. David, you haven't sinned against God only. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah. It's even, you mentioned it in the superscript. How can David say that he's only sinned against God? Like, what is he thinking? What I think the best means to understand this is, is to simply keep reading, right? Against you, you only have sinned, then it moves on, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I think what, what's happening here, actually we're helped by uh, a part of the story in Second Samuel 12 I, I didn't mention. You see, after Nathan confronts David about his sin, and, and David seems to repent truly, there, the, the sin doesn't just get like swept under the rug. It, it doesn't just disappear. It doesn't just go away. No, there's judgment involved. In fact, David's reign, the rest of his reign, there's just utter turmoil. There's turmoil within his family. family. There's turmoil in his kingdom. Judgment happens after his sin. There's mercy too, but there's also Judgment on David. And so I think what he's getting at here in in verse 4 is that there's an ultimate sense of sin. 
in that God was the only one who could actually hold David accountable for his sin. Right? Think about it. David, he was the king. Essentially, he could do whatever he wanted. I mean, sadly, in the story of 2 Samuel 11, David did do whatever he wanted, and that's where this whole thing began. His subjects couldn't really convict him. Nathan could only come confront him because he was a prophet. So when David says that his sin is against only God, I think that this is true in the sense that his sin can only be punished. It can only be taken care of by God. You know, sin, it can be done against others, ourselves, but ultimately all sin is done against God. We pay for our sin in many ways in this life. Our sin might have consequences. It might cause us trouble in this life. We hurt others. We hurt ourselves. But ultimately, God handles sin. Ultimately, God punishes sin. And so it's easy, or at least it should be easy, for us to see the consequences of our sin in this life on others or on ourselves when things rise up or when bad things happen to us because we sinned. But I wonder if it's not sometimes hard to grasp how our sin is done against God. And I think we read verse 4 and we kind of bristle a little bit, like, whoa, 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 David, you sinned against other people. Like, how can you say that? But I think that the theological truth that David presents in this psalm is one we tend to miss. Friends, your sin is a big deal. It harms yourself. It harms others. It's a big deal. But friends, your sin is an even bigger deal because it's committed against God. It's an even bigger deal because it's committed against the God who made everything. It's committed against the God who loves you. It's committed against the God who's perfectly holy and just. Sin is a big deal because it's committed against the God who ultimately takes care of sin. Well, this prayer of confession, it's put forward a problem, has it not? It's put forward this problem of David's sin in particular. And verses 5 and 6, they really kind of conclude this first section by ratcheting up just how bad David's sin problem is. You know, he's admitted his sinfulness. He's confessed that he has sin, that he needs washed away. And then in verse 5, it's even worse. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. It's not just that David has sinned once or twice. It's not just that he has some recent sins. It's that he's been sinful his whole life. I think verse 6 is getting at this same idea. Sin, it's not simply a behavioral problem. You know, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, sin. God wants righteousness inside. It's a heart issue. So when we sin, it's a heart issue as well. There's an inkling of hope. You know, God, he teaches wisdom in the secret heart at the end of verse 6. And yet, this section has put forward a grave problem, hasn't it? Because David's not the only one born in sin. David's 
not the only one who needs to confess his sin. But all of us need to, too. You know, we hear David's sin in 2 Samuel, we think, wow, that's bad. Thank goodness I've never done anything like that. And gosh, I hope that's true. You know, we may never cover up adultery with murder. I hope none of us have done that. I hope none of us ever do that. But that doesn't mean we are any less sinful. Because ultimately sin is a heart issue perpetrated against God. David's prayer of confession should be our prayer of confession because David's sin problem is the same sin problem that we have. Yikes. This is bad news. At this point, you're probably wondering, why did Matt invite this guy back? What a downer. (laughs) But friends, I have some good news for you, and we're going to find it in our second section. We got to keep reading. We got to see this prayer for cleansing in verses 7 to 12. I'll I'll read it once again for us. Verse 7 Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This section is filled with David asking for cleansing from sin in a number of different ways, right? So verse 7, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop, it was used in purification rituals. So really he's saying the same thing when he says purge me with hyssop. He's saying the same thing he says in the second half there, wash me, right? Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. My bones are broken. Restore them. Verse 9, quit hiding your face from me. Uh, or hide your, I'm sorry, no, hide your face from my sins. Blot out my transgressions. 10, create in me a clean heart. Clean my heart. Renew a right spirit within me. 11, here's where it is. Don't hide from me, right? Cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your spirit from me. Verse 12, restore to me joy. David, he's asking for cleansing in all kinds of ways. You know, these are familiar lines to us. They're verses we love to quote. They're lines in our songs. But, but just notice for a moment how absolutely incredibly novel these lines were in David's day, right? You know, David, he's asking for cleansing at a time when all they had was like hyssop and purification rituals. The, they had these things, right? The, the priests would do these things, and yet they didn't cleanse people. They didn't get rid of sin. No, they had to keep doing them over and over and over again. And yet David, he's asking God to cleanse him. David, he asks for a clean heart. This is totally new at this time. Later on, the prophets would talk about this. They'd talk about a a new heart that we all need. But here, David says, create in me a clean heart. David, he seems truly inspired here when he asks God not to take his Holy Spirit away from him. 
Now, remember, in David's day, he didn't have like a robust doctrine of the Holy Spirit. No, a lot of that comes from Christ's own words when he, when he talks about the Holy Spirit or, or elsewhere, like in Paul and things like that. But at the time, David, he didn't have a, a doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and yet he's asking God, don't take your spirit away from me. It's incredible what he's asking. He's asking, I think, in many ways for more than he knew. He's asking for cleansing. He's asking, without even having the term, he's asking for sanctification. David's response in this section to the problem of sin is instructive, isn't it? You know, David, stricken by sin, plagued by transgression against God, he recognizes that the only solution is for God himself to do something about it. God must be the one to cleanse him. God must be the one to restore him. God must be the one to fix him. And it's the same with us. When it comes to our sin, we so badly want to be independent. We want to make our sin a, a do-it-yourself project. We want to take care of it ourselves. We, we, we're scared oftentimes that, God, he's probably mad at me. I've got to fix myself. I've got to clean myself up before I talk to him. But friends, we simply cannot do this on our own. There was a viral video a while back. It was of a, a little boy, and he filled two glasses of juice up. Maybe you remember this. And he kind of carried them, and then they spilled everywhere. And so he's like, okay, i got to clean this up. And so he goes and gets a towel. He cleans up the mess he made. And then he goes and he pours two new glasses of juice. And he's carrying the two new glasses of juice and slips in the juice from the first spill that he didn't quite clean up the first time. And so now there's just juice everywhere. All too often, we are that kid when it comes to our sin. We think we can do it all ourselves, and then we make a mess of things. And we think we can clean ourselves up, but the mess ends up taking us down again. As we've already considered sin, it's not merely a behavioral issue. If it were, maybe we could take care of that, or at least make some strides. We could probably sort of maybe kind of fix our behavior. But sin, it's innate. It's intrinsic. It's a heart problem, and that's why we need a new one. We need God to act, and he does. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God does purify us, not with hyssop, not with a purification ritual, but with the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus, on the cross. God blots out all of our iniquities through his son, nailing our sin to the cross, placing it on Jesus himself so that sinners like us could go free. Through the gospel, God creates in us clean hearts. He gives us new hearts for those who trust in the work of Christ on the cross. And God renews a right spirit in each of us. Actually, it's better than that. He gives us His Holy Spirit. He will never cast us out of His presence because if you've put your faith in Jesus, you have His presence in you. Maybe you're here this morning and you just feel like there's no way God would ever choose to cleanse you from your wrongdoing. 
You know, maybe, maybe you feel like you've done too much, that God could never forgive you. Friend, the good news of the gospel is that God is more than willing to forgive you and cleanse you. And you want to know how I know this is true? Because Jesus wanted you to be cleansed so bad that he died on the cross for you. He gave up his own life. He sacrificed himself for you. That's how bad he wanted you to be forgiven. And Jesus didn't die so he could be stingy with his mercy. He, he didn't die. There's no, there's no act, there's no sin too great that it could overcome the mercy of God. No, the mercy of God overcomes all of our sin. If you would but turn from your sin in repentance and believe in what Jesus did for you. If you haven't yet given your life to Jesus through these two things, if you're still worried that you've just done too much, oh, please talk to me, talk to Matt, talk to one of the elders, talk to the person you came with. Today is a great day to, to let God cleanse you. Bring your sin before the God who shows mercy. This sounds crazy. Most people would not turn themselves in for a crime they've committed. And yet there is no better thing to do than go to God with your sin and find forgiveness. The Apostle John writes in his first epistle, in his first letter, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.10, I believe you can read that first chapter later if you'd like. It's, it's wonderful. It's powerful. It's a great scripture. It's only when we come to an end of ourselves. It's only when we relinquish our independence and trust in God that he can fix our sin problems. That's when we find hope. That's when we find life. That's when we find forgiveness. And then that spirit God gives us, that empowers us to continue to work at fighting sin in our lives together with God in sanctification. Well, we've seen a prayer of confession highlighting the problem of our sin. We've seen a prayer of cleansing, the solution to our sin, that is the gospel itself. So how then should we respond? We see this in our final point, a prayer of contrition. Verses 13 to the end, I'll I'll read them briefly. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Well, if indeed cleansing comes from God, then what will the response be? What will the result be? Well, in verse 13, we see that David will teach transgressors the ways of the Lord so that sinners will return to God. It's really cool that evangelism is nothing new, right? What do cleansed people do? They tell other people about how to be cleansed themselves. 
That's not the only active response we see here, though. Verses 14 and 15, David, he simply proclaims that if God cleanses him, then he's going to sing about it. He's going to worship God. He's going to praise God for what he's done. The, the cleansing work of God, it doesn't simply cause the cleanse to share it with others. It causes them to rejoice also. And so, in these first few verses, we, we see a few actions that the cleansed take. It's not an exhaustive list by any means, but we see a few things that cleansed people do. But just as sin is not a behavioral issue, it's a heart issue, what we see in this passage, and I think actually the heart of this section, is that worship is not just an action thing either, but it comes from the heart as well. We see this really in verses 16 and 17. God, he doesn't delight in sacrifices. He's not necessarily pleased with burnt offerings, but verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Evangelism, worshiping in song, any sort of act of worship, these are important responses to what God has done for us. But if we're doing them with selfish motives, if we're doing them to kind of make ourselves feel better or righteous, if we're doing them as even sort of a defense mechanism to justify sin in our lives, right? Oh, well, I'm doing this, so this is fine. Oh, if we're doing any of those things, then our acts of worship are worthless. Actions are great, but we need to check the heart behind them. And according to David, the right response to the work of God is a contrite heart. But what does that mean? Well, what does it look like to have a contrite heart? I feel like we say that a lot, maybe. We, I feel like I hear that a lot. You know, just have a contrite heart. What, what's that mean? Well, it means what we've been saying all along. It's a heart that confesses sin and the need for God to do something about it. It's a heart that wants to be cleansed. It's a heart that responds in worship to the God who does cleanse. It's a heart that's broken because of the relational break that sin causes. It's a heart that humbly comes before God, knowing that in our sin we deserve nothing but wrath, but trusting that God is good and merciful to forgive. That's what it looks like to have a contrite heart. The psalm ends, verses 18 and 19, with a, a corporate note. I think it's a good reminder to us that the psalms, they were Israel's corporate songbook. This is what the people sang together. And so while this is in many ways a very personal prayer, we see that the response is to be a corporate thing, right? Do good to Zion, do good to Jerusalem. There might be a literal sense here to kind of you know, build up the walls, but I wonder if David's not using some poetic language to talk about the spiritual realities here as well, right? You know, build up Jerusalem that they may prosper spiritually. Because he continues on by saying, then you will delight in right sacrifices. I think what David's saying is that make the people's hearts contrite. Make them true worshipers of you so that their acts of worship, their sacrifices, burnt offerings, you would enjoy God so that their acts of worship would be uh, good unto you, so that they would be delightful unto the Lord. 
so too we should desire our hearts, but not just our hearts, the hearts of our people, our fellow church members, to be the same, to be built up spiritually, to be contrite, to, 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 to delight and desire to worship God. You know, one really practical way we can all do this this week is just by praying for our fellow church members. We, you know, maybe by name, maybe just in general, but one simple way to put this into practice is just by praying that we would be a people that have hearts that truly want to worship God, that our hearts would be prepared on Sunday morning to worship God, that distractions would be pushed aside, that we would be able to focus on singing, that we would be coming to church thankful. That would be a great thing for all of us to do this week, just praying for our church families. Well, as we prepare to close, let's make sure our own hearts are ready to sing praise to God. Why? Well, we've seen a prayer of confession. We've seen the problem of sin. We've seen the problem of David's sin, but it's showed us the problem of our own sin. We've seen a prayer for cleansing, the solution to sin. It doesn't rest on our own abilities, but rather on God's mercy to cleanse us through Christ. So how could we not respond like David's prayer of contrition? How could we not respond worshiping and praising with right hearts? Friends, we too have great sin, but we have a greater God who forgives us our sin. So bring your sin before the God who shows mercy. Quit, Quit hiding. Quit running. Quit trusting in your own righteousness, your own ability, but rather come humbly before the Lord, trusting that He will be faithful to forgive. Let's pray. Father, we come before You this morning humbled because we are so very aware of our own sin. Lord, we confess that this week we have not worshipped You as we should, We've not lived a life pleasing to you as we should. We've done wrong in thought, in word, in deed. But Father, we praise you that you do not leave us alone in our sin, but have made a way for us to be forgiven. Father, thank you for your Son who died for us to cleanse us from all sin. So help us now to sing praise to you with thankful hearts, with right hearts, with hearts that truly desire to worship you for all that you've done for us. God, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.